to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where our text will come from this morning, the same text we've been in for the last two weeks. Uh, We will round out our time together here this morning. Um, We're continuing and finally concluding our preaching series of spiritual disciplines. Um, So uh, if you have Ephesians chapter 4 in front of you, go ahead and say amen. Any more times I hold up? All right, let's read verse 1. Begin in verse 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended, also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father God, we ask that you would take our time together this morning as we focus on your word uh, and that you would make Christ more clear to us uh, and transform us uh, into more the image of your son. Father, we need your help through the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in week one, we looked at the reality to which we have been called. Uh, and then we, looked, we took from verse one, right, at the end of verse one, where Paul says, uh, we're to walk in a worthy manner to which we have been called. And the idea is that, that God is the one who calls us. We do not call ourselves. And then in the second week, we looked at the telos, or the end goal of all spiritual disciplines, uh, and, and oftentimes we, we generally think that spiritual disciplines are merely meant for us, right? The personal. It's what we do to uh, grow ourselves up. This is to help us. And as we've seen at the end of this passage, um, primarily spiritual disciplines are for the building up of the church. That's the end goal. Mature manhood, the full stature of Christ. And this week we get down into the weeds of spiritual disciplines. What is it that we're actually supposed to be doing? But before we dive into these specifics and to how we should think about spending our time and focusing our efforts on, let me point out two massive principles in our text this morning. I'll give them to you and then we'll walk through them. Number one, sanctification is only accomplished because of God's grace. Sanctification is only accomplished because of God's grace. Number two, nevertheless, Paul urges Christians to walk in a worthy manner. Nevertheless, Paul urges Christians to walk in a worthy manner. Look with me at verse number 7 of our text this morning. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended 
on high a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It's important that we understand when we begin to talk about what we should do, how we should structure our days, what our lives should look like, what our habits should be as Christian men and as Christian women, uh, that we make sure we're grounded in this truth, that God is the one who sanctifies us. We do not sanctify ourselves. So, so in verse 1, Paul's established that we have been called. Called here for Paul is a summation of God's electing grace to save any of us. It's a word that in, in the sense is doing a lot of work. Because for Paul, it sums up everything he has written in the first three chapters. In other words, this calling that God has done us to, that he has called us into, is the fact that God is the one who saved us. We did not save ourselves. This is important, and, and once you understand this, this is absolutely freeing. When you understand that Christ chose you and you didn't choose him, then you are free from the constant struggle and the wrestling with and the measuring up of whether or not God truly cares for you. Some people think about God's love um, in, in a weird way. What I mean is when they get to verses which talk about God choosing them, before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians chapter 1 does, they think that, that God is somehow, before time begins, looks through the corridors of time and sees you, and sees a decision that you may or may not make. And then based upon your decision, he then chooses you. What's the problem with this type of thinking? The problem with this type of thinking is it makes us the center of God's saving work. It makes our choice, our will, our decision to follow Christ the basis for God choosing us. But friends, this is completely backwards from how the scriptures think about God's choosing. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of his will. So, so, so understand that God did not call you to himself because of some future choice that you might make. Rather, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be his sons, to be his daughters. And it's on the basis of him choosing us and not us choosing him that enables us then to love him. This is what 1 John chapter 4 verse 19 means when, when the apostle John says we love because he first loved us. So God is the one who has opened our eyes. He is the one who has given us new hearts. This is what called means in verse 1. But then the danger becomes that we think we can then maintain the Christian life or that we can grow in holiness or in our Christ-likeness without the work of the Spirit in our lives. We think that if we read our Bibles enough, if we pray enough, if we give enough, or if we keep the commandments enough, that then we will be able to grow into his holiness by ourselves. And this is a natural human response, but the problem with it is that as born-again creatures, born-again creations, we are no longer merely natural humans. Rather, the Galatian, rather we, are, we are, 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 are supernatural human, as uh, Paul would describe in, in the book of Romans. But, but it's in the Colossians, the, like, this is natural, like the church has been struggling with this idea of like, okay, I'm saved by faith uh, uh, and grace alone, but then let me go over here and try to clean myself up in all these ways. The Galatians struggled, uh, the Galatian church struggled with this very thing, which is why Paul addressed it so directly. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who, who, who has bewitched you? 
Who's told you something else? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I understand that the the, the Galatian church was beginning to think that, that, that they were saved by grace through faith alone, but now somehow they have to return to the works of the law to clean themselves up, to, to grow in righteousness. And Paul's saying, like, that's, that's foolish. Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, of course, is, well, of course it's by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The scriptures are clear that even after turning and trusting in Christ, because God has given us new hearts, we must then continue in our path of becoming like Christ, not through works of the law, but through faith. In other words, our sanctification is a work of God in our lives and not a work we merely do by ourselves. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful and helping us understand what sanctification is. It says this, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they more and more quicken and strengthen in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man, no man shall see the Lord. In other words, to sum that down, it's saying that sanctification, that is the process by which we begin to look more and more like Christ in this life, is because of the word and spirit dwelling in us. This is important. I need you to hear me say this because this provides freedom to actually now pursue Christ while resting in his finished work for us. Your own growth and maturation and holiness is because God is working in you. Understand that. Number two, nevertheless, Paul here urges Christians to walk in a worthy manner. Look back at verse one. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says in this verse that they are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, he is saying that since you have been saved, you should actually live like you're saved. This is basic Christianity 101. If you are saved, if you are called, if you are regenerated in your heart, then there are, then there are ways that we must view the world. There, it naturally follows that if you are in Christ, you will want to glorify him. You see, one of the biggest distinctions that the Reformation of the church uh, in the, the, the late 16th, 17th century gave us was the distinction between the law and the gospel. You see, Martin Luther recognized that the word of God brings a different kind of healing the law and gospel. Law describes what God requires. It demands perfection. Think of the Ten Commandments, a standard that we and I cannot meet. James says if you're guilty in one, you're guilty in all of them. However, the gospel describes what God provides so that we may live. The law is like the surgeon's knife, cutting the sin that corrupts our lives and brings death. The gospel, however, is healing. It's the most profound healing since it is eternal and heals us in every well, you see, the law is what God commands us to do. The gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. 
The law says do, but the gospel tells us done. The gospel says you are this, so go and do that. This may seem elementary, but it's very easy to mix these things up. As Christians, we have been redeemed by Jesus. Our remaining sinful hearts will always want to return to the law to try to prove ourselves worthy of being called sons of God. I heard someone once say that uh, every man wants to hear their father look at them as God the Father looked at Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that's true of all of our hearts, that we're always looking and trying to prove ourselves worthy of something, worthy of God's love. We think that if we could somehow measure up, we then, then we will uh, be worthy of God actually loving us. We say, well, I'm a Christian now, so I better go and prove that I am a Christian. And it's this type of thinking, it's this type of framework which produces pharisaical people. It's this type of framework which makes us walk in pride when we see others struggling with sins that we don't. It's this type of framework which produces the kinds of people who, as uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, who practice their righteousness before men so that they may be seen of men. But the solution to this type of wrongheadedness is not to live in any way we want. To live as if God hasn't given us or told us how we should live. This is often the solution proposed by progressive Christianity, which merely shouts grace, 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 without ever calling people to repentance. Which we examined back in November that repentance is defined as not merely saying that we are sorry or sorrowful to God, but turning away from our sin completely to go a different way. No, the answer is not live however you want. The answer that after we have understood our identity as being bound up in Christ, which I mean that when we understand that, that God the Father looks at us and he sees his son, his righteousness applied to us, when we understand that we are not called the children of God because of anything within ourselves, anything that we've done to deserve it, when we understand that to be primarily who we are, then we are freed to return to the scriptures with fresh eyes and new hearts. Hearts that long to please the Father. Hearts that long to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, we return to every single command in the scripture knowing that the Father has chosen us to be his holy people. And we joyfully keep and obey all of his commandments. And this is what it means to glorify God. As part of our family worship at our house, at the Sheezer house, uh, I've been teaching my children to memorize the catechism for boys and girls. Uh, and the third question is, and none of them are in here, or they'd, I'd have them answer for you. The third question is, uh, why did God make you in all things? And the answer, which even Myra can tell you, is for his own glory. The next question, how can you glorify God? The answer, by loving him and doing what he commands. Friends, when we love God and do what he commands, God is glorified in that. When we love God and do what he commands, God is glorified. This is why Paul is urging the Ephesians to live in such a way that aligns with the new life that they have in Christ. Because this is how God will be glorified. This is why you and I were created to glorify God. That's the end goal. That's the, 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 the arch and the aim and the story. The ending of all of it is that God will be glorified. And don't you want to, be glorif don't you want to glorify God? If that's why you're created, 
then shouldn't it resound within the heart of a Christian that, yes, that's what I want to do. So don't try to pit these two principles against each other. Do not try and say, well, God is the one who does it all, therefore it doesn't really matter how I live. And do not try to say, well, I must muster up in my own strength and do all the right things so that I can be more holy. You see, sanctification is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit within us, and yet we are to live in such a way that lines up with how God has told us to live. So in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? Or in other words, what should we do? I have four disciplines that I want to highlight this morning, uh, and then I will be out of your way, that I believe the scriptures are overwhelmingly clear on as being the types of disciples and the types of disciplines, the types of holy habits, which mark and define for us what Jesus calls an abiding in him, and what Paul calls in verse 1, walking in a worthy manner. Here they are, four things. Number one, walk in faith. Number two, eat the word. Number three, plead in prayer. And number four, sing with enthusiasm. Number one, walk in faith. As Christians, if we do not have faith, then we have nothing. This is, as far as I can tell, the most important spiritual discipline or the most important holy habit that you can develop. Paul in Romans chapter 14 is dealing with the reality that Christ has created a new people. Both Jews and Gentiles have been brought in to be one new people. And you can imagine uh, when you bring two different types of people from two different backgrounds, from two different ways of viewing the world, you bring them together and you say, now you're one new family, get along. You can imagine there would be some problems. And such is the case in Romans chapter 14 where Paul is talking about uh, whether or not it's okay to eat certain foods. And he gives them the principle of how those types of people are to live together, how they're to navigate this new life in Christ as one new, one new people group. It should be noted, though, that even though Paul says he knows and is convinced that it's okay for Christians to eat all foods, foods that have been previously declared unclean, even though Paul view, considers this viewpoint to be the viewpoint of one who is strong in the faith, he gives a great Christian principle of not causing those who are weak in the faith to stumble. But it's not that that I want to talk about this morning. It's at the end of that chapter that Paul says these words, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, the scriptures are saying that if you believe eating unclean food is wrong, and you go ahead and eat the unclean food anyways, that for you, it's sin. And why is it sin? It's not because eating unclean food is sinful in and of itself. It's not. In fact, the scriptures are very clear in passages like Acts chapter 10, that all food has been declared to be clean. So it isn't sinful to eat, uh, to, to eat your bacon. Okay? It's not sinful to eat shrimp. It isn't sinful because eating it is not sinful. Or it's not sinful because eating it is sinful. It's sinful then for this person. Why? Because they're not eating it in faith. They're eating it with doubts. They're condemning themselves and then they eat it anyway. The point is that it isn't proceeding from faith. All of our spiritual disciplines, indeed all of our lives, must proceed from faith. You might be saying, well, how do you do that, Pastor? It seems pretty basic. It seems like something we all nod our heads to and agree, but what does that look like in life on the ground? This means that how we raise our children must be done in faith. 
What does this mean? It means that as we discipline our children, as we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as we teach them God's commandments, we aren't merely doing it because we're commanded to. And we aren't doing it thinking that it's pointless and that maybe God will use it and maybe he won't. But that as we do all of these things, we are doing it in faith that God will bless it. We are doing it knowing and believing and trusting that the God of the universe will light on fire the logs we are placing around our children's hearts. We do it knowing and believing and trusting that God will take our ordinary evenings or our ordinary days and use it for his glory. Walking in faith means that we aren't just married to our spouses, aren't just trying to love and serve one another for the sake of ourselves or for the other person. It means that we truly believe that our marriage is a sermon that is preaching to the world about Christ's love for the church. Walking in faith means that we aren't mere employees or employers as a cog in a giant machine of productivity, but that when we are working, think about this, when you're working whatever your job is, then you are working truly, honestly, for Christ himself. We truly believe we are serving him in the workplace. That's what it means to work in faith. Walking in faith means that when we come together as a church, when we gather weekly with other brothers, other sisters in the Lord, that we believe the Lord is working in all of us in ways that he isn't working when we aren't gathered. It means that when we show up here on a Sunday morning, we show up in anticipation that the Lord's actually going to work. He's going to transform us by the preached word, by the songs and the psalms we sing, by taking the Lord's Supper, we walk in faith knowing that he is using these very ordinary means to do something extraordinary in our life together. Walking in faith means that we fear God and no man. Oftentimes our hearts and minds and wills, when faced with conflict between the world and what we know God's word to say, we will want to be quiet, to go along, to get along. We want to compromise so we stay quiet we give in to fear. And friends, this must not be so. We must fear, but not man. We must fear God and know man. This is what daily walking in faith is. It's trusting in the promises that God will keep his word. We must walk in faith. Number two, we must eat the word. We must eat the word. What I mean by this is we must not starve to death. So many Christians are dying and withering on the vine because they do not have a proper diet. They are not eating the word. Uh, my, my, my daughter has recently learned um, about uh, proper diet balancing. Uh, so yesterday uh, they had donuts for breakfast. And I thought she was going to ask for some broccoli or something. She's like, Dad, this doesn't seem like a very balanced breakfast. But then dinner came around and she looked at her plate and um, we had like a chicken alfredo with a side salad. And she's like looking at it. She's like, okay. She said, is pasta grains is this, is this grains, Dad? I need my grains for the day. I said, yeah, those are grains, honey. She said, okay. And she said, I got chicken, so that's protein. I said, yeah. She's like, we don't have fruits. We have veggie as a salad. And my wife decided to point out to her that uh, tomatoes are indeed a fruit, which ensued in a whole argument between, um, between my children. And I said, hey, like, don't worry about it. It's balanced. Anyways, uh, so many Christians think that they can uh, uh, live in God's word apart from God's food. Jesus answered the devil in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Donald Whitney wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and he had this to say about eating the word. No spiritual discipline is more important. Pause. I disagree with that. The most important spiritual discipline is faith. 
You can read your Bible every day, all day, and not have faith and it not count anything for you in your pursuit of godliness. Anyways, going on. Uh, nothing is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet for the, uh, of the milk and meat of Scripture. The reasons for this are obvious. In the Bible, God tells us about himself and especially about Christ Jesus, the incarnation of God. The Bible unfolds the law of God to us and shows us how we're all, we've all broken it. There we learn how Christ died as a sinless, willing substitute for breakers of God's law and how we must repent and believe in him to be right with God. In the Bible, we learn the ways and will of the Lord. We find in Scripture how God wants us to live and what brings the most joy and satisfaction in life. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. Therefore, if we know God, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. So friends, how should we eat this Word? That's the question. First, we must eat the Word together. This may be controversial for some of you, but the most important meal you eat all week is not your own daily Bible reading habits. It's not your personal devotions. The most important meal you eat all week is in the meal prepared as we've gathered together with the saints. As we pray God's Word, as we read God's Word, as we preach God's Word, we are eating the Word, feasting on the Scriptures. Understand this, for most of the church's history, having a personal Bible reading plan didn't make sense for they didn't exist. The church was fed on God's word week in and week out on the Lord's day. So when we say eat the word, understand that there's a hierarchy and a prioritization to how we consume the word. So many people have replaced feasting on God's word together in worship and have settled for a little personal snack of intimate devotion reading every day. And oftentimes what they read is confusing, hard to understand, so they merely check the box, having walked away unsatisfied, and still hungry. We must eat the word together. Not only that, but we must eat the word in our families. Matthew Henry wrote a book called A Church in the House, Restoring Daily Worship to the Christian Household. I read it a number of years back, but in it he exhorts every house should be a little church. His point was not that the home should replace the church, but that the home should become a fountain of blessing for both the local church and the community at large. In other words, fathers, your family life together must be centered on feasting on God's word. This is something families in our country used to understand to be the center of the family. There was a time in America when churches, we should bring this back. There used to be a time in the church when elders of the church would place under discipline men who didn't catechize their children. Think about that. That's how serious the church took family worship. That if a father neglected his duties to raise his kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that he himself would be placed under church discipline. But as faith waned and pagan society began to vie for our attention, the family life began to be centered on other things. I don't have the space or the time or the patience to begin to point out all of the ways we may get this wrong. But what might your family life center upon? It's easy to diagnose Consider this, what are the conversations around the dinner table most often consumed with in your house? Perhaps a better question, a starting question is, is your family even, even having dinners around the table together? Not just when you eat at a restaurant. You see, if you aren't having family dinners, what is keeping you from family dinners? 
What is keeping you from calling the family together to sit around the table? What is keeping you from having dominion over the household? Is it your job? Is it sports? Extracurricular engagement in school activities? Where does your time grow? What stories do you tell? All of these questions will easily show what your life, family life is centered upon. For a large majority of us, it won't just be one particular thing. Instead, it will be the fact that our family life is not centered on family life at all, but that it's centered on individual life and what each person wants. Each person in our family gets to design and, and, and to develop their own life apart from the family unit. We've raised the individual over the group. And this has had devastating consequences in the life of the church and the life of individual families. Now, I don't want to be too prescriptive here uh, for two reasons. Number one, is there's, just isn't, there's not just one way to do this. And because I'm planning, number two, a larger sermon series on family life for later this year, most likely in the fall. But let me wrap up this point by pointing you to center your family life on God's word. How that looks in each family will be different, but it must happen. We must eat the word in our families. Finally, we must eat the word individually. We have to be lover of God, lovers of God's word if we're going to be lovers of God, of the God who really is. It's impossible to truly love the God who really is without loving the word in which he tells us about himself. One of the easiest ways to uh, know whether or not uh, you've created a God of your own image is to check and see what kind of God do you love. Do you love the God of the scriptures? Or do you mute certain passages and elevate other passages? We must take the word and read it individually. Number three, third discipline of the, of the Christian life. We must plead in prayer. We must plead in prayer. Not only is prayer an essential element of our Christian faith, it's one of the most precious gifts the Father has given us. Hebrews chapter 4 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Once you realize who you were before God, understand this, once you realize that before Christ coming into your life you were wretched, you were a sinner, you were cast off from God, you were an enemy of God, when you realize that, and then you realize what Christ has done to actually repair your life, to create you as a new individual. And furthermore, the benefits that he now provides to his children, it will blow you away. He calls us into his presence daily and asks us to cast our cares upon him. Every time we close our eyes in prayer, every time we bow our heads, every time we go to our knees, we are once again going to a father who loves us. Each prayer is another reminder that to ourselves that we need God. Oftentimes I think what keeps us from prayer is we think we can do it ourselves. Every prayer is an act of submission to him. Every prayer is an act of dependence upon him to uphold us, to sustain us. And this is why the scriptures constantly call us up and into the benefits of prayer. Just listen to these verses. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, come steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Ephesians six eighteen, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Oftentimes I've heard Christians say, well, you know, God just doesn't really care 
about my little problem. Therefore, I'm not going to bother him. The problem with that is we, 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 we think God is like us. I have four young children, uh, plus a bonus kiddo at the moment. And, and oftentimes, they, they, <laughs> we've been teaching them that they can't just walk up and interrupt. Like uh, in conversation, my, it's, like, it's like a pet peeve of mine, number one. But they'll walk up like while I'm talking to Julie, and they'll just blurt out whatever it is that's on their mind. And I'm like, what? Like, stop. Oftentimes we view God that way, don't we? He must be too busy. Let me keep this to myself. And yet it's not. God is not like us. God has unlimited capacity to hear your pleas and to hear your prayers. Listen, he has nothing better to do in the universe than to stoop down and listen to the prayer of one of his children. So we must plead in prayer. Finally, sing with enthusiasm. I will continue always to beat this drum from this pulpit because we live in a day and age where which singing has been made little. And yet the scriptures constantly, constantly call us and demand of us and command us to sing. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Listen, singing, Christians, hear me, especially men, singing is not optional. It's not like you come to church and maybe you sing this week, maybe you don't. You do because your Lord demands it from you. And you sing enthusiastically. Like, like I think, I don't know, maybe. No, so I, I, uh, I was in choir as a young man. Um, and oftentimes I was made fun of. Choir boys was the name of uh, what, what was often, you, you were either in band or choir or on a sports team. And all the manly men were obviously playing football. My father wouldn't let me play football, for he played it growing up, and he can't hardly walk. And so he said, well, I don't want that for you. And so I decided to join the choir. And you might think, well, that's good for you, Pastor, but that's not good for me. Let the, let, let the, let the young boys sing, but men don't sing. One of my metrics of which I gauge a man's manliness is with how loud does he sing? How loud does he sing? You know why? Because most men don't sing. They're afraid. And what is it that keeps them from singing? What, what fear is it in them that keeps them from singing? Well, I don't want these people to make fun of me or my voice. What is that? It's, it's fear of man. It's fear of man. Listen, fear God and no man. And once you realize this, once you understand this, then you can be the loudest voice in the room. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, this is one of the ways in which men actually lead their families. This is one way, fathers, which you can lead your families well. Listen, your singing, when your children grow up, when you, and they remember back, what was dad like? Well, dad was always quiet, mumbled songs. Is that what you want your kids to remember? Listen, when we sing loud, when we sing with enthusiasm, what we're saying to our children and to the world 
is that he's worthy of it all. I don't know if you've read any of the scriptures that have to do about heaven. You should start singing now because that is what we will be doing there. We will sing a new song, a song which we can only begin to grasp on, on this side of heaven. So brothers, don't be dissuaded, don't be discouraged. Sing loudly, for your Lord is worthy of your praise. And these are the spiritual disciplines. This is what we need to walk in. This is what we need to grow in this year, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he supplies. We walk in faith. We eat the word. We plead in prayer. And we sing with enthusiasm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word the day to us. Lord, as we consider, um, Lord, the, the, this passage in, chapter, in Ephesians chapter 4, Father, and we think about...